This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for the fourth episode of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is another really awesome guest. He is an iOS developer at Artsy. In fact, he's not only an iOS developer, but he's also a compassionate software developer. He's all about the feels. And he works a lot on open source, and he is a great conference speaker as well. It's uh, Ash Furrow. Welcome to the show, Ash. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. How are things today in, uh, in the Big Apple in New York? In, in the Big Apple, things are a little rainy, but, uh, but that's okay. I mean, it feels like fall or autumn, I guess they call it, over, over in the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's good to be international. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, like I'm, I'm Canadian originally, so living in America has been, uh, has been like a interesting experience. Like I still do all my temperatures in Celsius because why wouldn't you? Um, but I'm, I'm getting more into using feet and, and inches and things like that. So who knows? Yeah, it's, it's about 20 degrees here. It's nice. It's, it's windy. It's good. Yeah, it sounds similar to here as well. It's, uh, you know, fall is definitely coming, but mm -hmm. so far so good still, right? Definitely. So uh, we've met quite a lot of times now. We've met at different conferences, mostly in Europe. And uh, I think actually the first time I met you was here in Krakow, where I live now. Oh, I think cool. the first time we met was at MobiConf. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how are you on the conference front these days? Are you still doing a lot of speaking? I, I've quieted down a little bit um, in terms of speaking. Uh, there are some like external factors why I'm doing that, but I also just wanted to take a, a bit of a breather and uh, and just kind of focus a little bit more on, on my own career. Um, so like I, I really enjoy speaking. That's like something that's part of my career, but um, I did it a lot for a few years and I just needed a break. So uh, um, I'm working more on like um, coding stuff and doing research into team dynamics. I'm, I'm writing blog posts and stuff as I, as I go along. So I'm still sharing information. I'm just not doing as much traveling anymore. That's all. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you seem to have kind of the same schedule as I have right now, which is, <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of hectic and lots of traveling, uh, which I guess you can do for a while. But after a while, you kind of need a little break and just Definitely. quiet down, I guess. Yeah, and that's what this has been. So I took uh, I took a number of weeks off in August. I went home to Canada to see my family. Um, I I kind of uh, just bummed around the city for a little bit, and uh, like when I came back from Canada, um, so it's been uh, it's been nice just to just relax. I'm taking the rest of the year off from. Well, I've got a workshop next next week. I'm doing on RX Swift for the Tri Swift NYC conference. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, but after that, I, I think I'm good for the rest of the year. All right, yeah, that that, that sounds good. Uh, I'm I'm gonna do quite a lot of of speaking still this uh, this fall and probably next year as well. But then then we'll see. Maybe I'll also go on a little bit of a of a break. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a break over the summer, so I've been relaxing most of the summer actually and taking taking a bit of a breather. Awesome. So uh, when you're not speaking at conferences and and blogging and things like that, you are working at Artsy. That's right. What's that like? It's amazing. Uh, it's um, from day one. It's it's been the best job I've ever had. Um, when when I read the description, um, 
like the formal description I'd already spoken with Orta about the job. Uh, it, it just described me so perfectly. You know, they were looking for someone who was who was interested in art and, and technology, who um, had uh, um, passion for open source communities and open source software. Um, it just it just perfectly described me. So I was I was really excited to to join, and that was uh, three and a half years ago. So this is the I mean, like three and a half years isn't. It's not that long, really, but you know, at a, working at a startup, <laughs> it's uh, you know, um, some some. It's not uncommon to see people leave their tech jobs after a couple years, and uh, I just I don't see that happening anytime soon for me. Yeah, you seem to be just like Orda. You seem to be, you know, you kind of associate artsy with <laughs> with you, you know, a lot. Uh, and I when when I think of artsy, I think about you. I think about Orda and some of the other awesome people you have as well, of course, but, mm -hmm. you know, you guys kind of really stand out. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned open source there, and Artsy has kind of become uh, kind of famous in the iOS community for kind of popularizing this open source by default uh, way of working. How is that to work in that way? And you're still doing quite a lot of open source, I guess. That's right, yeah. So uh, for a quick rundown, open source by default is the idea that um, you know most software in the world today is written um, in, in private. It's written as a closed source software. And it's opened only if there's a really good reason to open it. And, and Artsy kind of flips that on its head and says, well, why don't we default to writing open source software? And then if there's a reason to keep it secret, then we can keep a secret. And there's there's tons of closed source software at Artsy. Like um, we, we don't we're not um, one of those companies that's sort of like open source by demand or or um, where we force all of our software to be open source because there are some things that make the business valuable or unique. Um, so things that we wouldn't you know want. Um, you know, someone starting up like Artsy2 or something like that. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's open source by default, and all of our iOS software is open source. Uh, we have one closed source um, library, and it's uh, it's fonts. We aren't allowed to distribute the fonts, so. Right, can't do much about that. Exactly. So we have a, a um, you know, to make sure that people are able to, um, you know, download our source code and run the application, we have like a duplicate of that library that has like open source <laughs> equivalents of all those fonts. Are they are they all Comic Sans? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Just like <laughs> all Comic Sans, extra bold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's a really cool way of working. And you're kind of seeing companies, including Hyper, where I work, uh, kind of looking at that and trying to also move in that direction and kind mm. of change the mindset a little bit. Like, you know, most of us were using a lot of open source on a daily basis. And maybe we can contribute back both in terms of creating libraries and other projects, but also some of the things that you guys have been doing, which is doing your development in the open. Mm-hmm and kind of showing your process a little bit. Yeah, totally. And some of that's been like a double-edged sword. So, I mean, like, there are parts of every company's process that they don't want to expose to the world. Um, so we've had to um, withdraw a little bit from using GitHub issues specifically for um, things like processes and planning and uh, and project planning and management. Um, so we're using some other tools now, and, and GitHub has become... Um, oh, more just like a repository for mostly code and like, 
you know, developer chores, you know, like those are the sorts of things that we use issues for now. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's been a learning process and uh, I definitely encourage other developers and other um, companies to try it and, and just try it because you, you don't need to like, you know, um, commit to it, uh, you know, immediately and, and fully. You can like, um, like we didn't. We started off with uh, with a closed source iOS application, a couple of them actually, and we started taking out chunks and putting them into um, their own libraries. And then eventually we we made our first open source application. And then we open sourced the rest of them. So it was a gradual process, and uh, you know we learned as we went, and and that's totally normal. Like if you're out there and and you want to push for a more open source friendly work environment then um you know really emphasize uh that you don't need to to go um you know 100 percent right away you can uh you can start small yeah definitely and maybe just like a start could be you know you have like you mentioned you have some component of your app that could be more general purpose that could benefit others it's kind of you know uh, isolated and it's a little bit its own thing uh, and just getting started with pushing that out and seeing what happens. Totally, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier like a little bit about process and I know, you know, both from speaking to you and, and how you are kind of speaking in the community online and doing some of your talks, you are very interested in, in teamwork and, you know, being more compassionate and under, understanding other people's context, etc. I totally agree with most of the things that you're all of the things probably that that you are kind of evangelizing or, or, or talking about. But w why is it kind of important to you to kind of spread those ideals and talk about those things, those more like soft values in the industry? That's a good question. Um, so it, it's important to me for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is is just as like a, a purely selfish motivation. Um, you know, if I help improve my workplace, then I get to benefit from that. And, uh, and I do. Um, so that's, that's quite nice. But um, there are, there are other reasons to do it too. For example, um, if you have a, a team that um, everyone feels comfortable admitting mistakes or asking questions, even silly questions, um, you know, that kind of thing, um, that atmosphere um, is is characterized by something called psychological safety and, and psychologically safe work environments perform better than other ones it's it's um, it's kind of surprising um, to some we have um, it's actually Google who came up with with this uh, project Aristotle they did like a, a five-year study of, of team dynamics and productivity and they were looking for like a leading indicator of like you know uh, what makes a, a high-performing team performed so well and they found that the you know by and far the biggest correlation was psychological safety so not only do I get to um, benefit from my own work environment improving um, I get to build better products with people and, and write fewer bugs and if I can sort of evangelize that out to the world you know like say I, I get um, I get you to improve your workplace. Well, we might be colleagues someday. So then I get to, you know, benefit from that, you know, later on down the road. So it, you know, it, it's a, it's not something where, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of, um, like, I don't lose anything by um, promoting psychological safety. I don't, I don't, um, you know, it doesn't cost me much to to write a blog post or a tweet or, or, you know, visit other companies around New York to discuss this. And the benefits are just 
you know, so enormous. So um, it's, it's, it's been a, a really um, gratifying um, thing to research and to operationalize on my own team. Um, but it's also been really gratifying personally to, to share with others and to, to um, spread around the world. And it's, it's, uh, it's nice to have like a positive impact on, on hopefully the entire tech industry. Yeah, I, I can I can really see that, and I I really love you know when people speak about these things because, you know it's something that we can sometimes forget a little bit when working that everyone is human you know even though we interact with each other mostly these days through the internet or Slack or you know something GitHub something like that mm-hmm. you know there's another person uh, on the other end, and remembering that and kind of treating everyone with respect and you know like you say building these more kind of sustainable and nicer workplaces uh, can really benefit everybody. Yeah, definitely. And like this extends into like open source communities as well. And like I could go on and on about that, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a real interesting uh, field of, uh, of like psychological research and then turning that research into like consumable chunks of like um, things you can actually do or steps you can take. Uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll make sure to put links in the show notes, both to your blog and also to some of your talks that you've done on this topic. Oh, thank you. So, you know, people can check that out if they're interested. And, you know, I really encourage everyone who's listening to the show to, to do that and to kind of, you know, hear what you have to say and kind of get those conversations started in your teams as well. Not only mm-hmm. talk about if a class should be final or if it should be a structure <laughs> class, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Even though that's fun too. Mm-hmm. All right. So speaking of classes and structs and Swift, uh, what do you say we start jumping into our questions? Let's do it. Awesome. So as you know, this show is all about answering listener submitted questions. And it's really up to you who are listening to the show to decide what it will be all about. And I want to thank everybody who has submitted questions and topics and tweets and comments and everything it's uh, been really really awesome since launching this show to kind of get this kind of feedback and to have this kind of dialogue with everyone who's listening and if you want to ask a question or submit a topic for an upcoming episode you can easily do so by going to either going to swiftbysundell.com podcast where there's a form where you can fill it in and send a question or you can just tweet a question or a topic to at Swift by Sundell on Twitter. So I'm looking forward to getting more questions and more topics for future episodes as well. So to kick off today's question, we have a really great question here from Fabian Buentello, who is at initfabian on Twitter. And he's asking, are there any techniques or patterns that you've seen in other languages that you wish existed in Swift? And he is also, as a parenthesis, asking you, Ash, about um, if there are any patterns in JavaScript in particular, because I know that you guys at Artsy, you're working a lot with React Native these days as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, a really good question and a very like broad question. Um, so I, I had to think, and um, it's it's not like a, an unsurprising answer, but one of my favorite, um, it's an abstraction, um, but it's also a, a technique. 
um, for writing asynchronous programming code, and um, it's called async await. Uh, it's really popular in modern JavaScript. It's really popular in C sharp and other .NET languages. Um, or I, I'm not sure. Uh, don't quote me on that. I don't know if other .NET languages have async await <laughs> or if it's just C sharp. Um, right. I know C sharp has it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. My first ever like professional coding job was C sharp, so I, I've got like, oh, really? a, a fondness in my heart for uh, for that language and uh, nice. All the cool stuff it does, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Me too. I really love C Sharp. I was also yeah. working with it for a couple of years before oh, that's iOS. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so async await is a way for you to, um, for developers to write code that looks synchronous, looks like regular, like, you know, um, code that, that just executes line by line, but is asynchronous under the hood so it can go and it can do like a network fetch or it can do like an expensive computation or it can do any number of things um, and um, so th this this abstraction is really powerful um, but it's built on some other abstractions that aren't yet possible to do in Swift that are called coroutines. Um, so JavaScript is coroutines, C Sharp is coroutines. Um, you can do these coroutine-ish things in Swift, but they're not like a first-class citizen. Like it's it's kind of a workaround or a hack to try and do them. Yeah. So those that's like that's like my favorite um, like pattern that I've seen in in other languages. I mean like. As far as, as like um, JavaScript goes, like we're using React, we're using React Native, um, and and that's exciting. I've seen some like attempts to make to reproduce that sort of like um, shadow DOM, uh, you know, hierarchy that gets like mirrored to a UI view hierarchy, like trying to recreate what makes React so awesome, but do it in Swift. I've seen I've seen uh, several people try and and do that and. I think that's really cool. Um, like, definitely keep it up. Um, but it's it's not as like foundational to me as like async await, where it's just kind of like changes the way you think about how you're gonna write code. Like, you're not thinking in terms of like completion handlers. And there's a there's an entire like class of bugs. Like, you know, if you forget to call a completion handler. Um, that's a serious problem that's hard to debug, but if you're using async await, then there is no completion handler. It's just a regular <laughs> return so, yeah. or a yield or, you know, you can get into the semantics of like, you know, it, it doesn't exist in Swift. So to like, uh, to talk about like, you know, semantics of hypothetical syntax doesn't really make a lot of sense, but, uh, but it's fun too. So, you know. Yeah, it's fun to speculate and to also look at other languages and kind of see what you like, what you maybe would have done differently or wish was differently. Definitely. And try to bring the best of other languages into Swift, right? Yeah, exactly. And like, so this year has seen me do like a lot of Ruby, a lot of JavaScript, some Scala. Like I've been kind of all over the place. This yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, um, <laughs> since since about like last autumn. Um, so it, it's been... Um, it's been amazing, and I've I've kind of brought some of those ideas from Swift and Objective C, even you know iOS development over to those platforms. But I'm also noticing like patterns and things, um, you know, like uh, trailing closure syntax. I just had this realization. I'm just like that. Wait a minute, that's just like Ruby's convention of passing in a, a block as the last parameter, and just like right. I don't know stuff like that. Like it, it's not just like a one-way thing. I'm also like taking those ideas that I, I learned in other languages and bringing them back to when I write Swift and Objective C. So it's been, it's been just a a, a blast and and also like very challenging because 
being a beginner at, at a bunch of things all over again is a, a huge like change in how productive I am compared to when I'm in Xcode. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's fun, it's educational, um, but I, I do enjoy getting back to where I'm more, most comfortable. Yeah, it's good to kind of stay on your feet or land on your feet every once mm -hmm. in a while, right? To yeah, kind exactly. of be where you're comfortable. Uh, and I agree with you. I think it's really great to at least every once in a while, like use another language or use another paradigm or another platform, because there's a lot to be inspired by out there. And even looking at Swift and Swift design and the evolution of Swift, it's clear that it was not designed in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. It's influenced by so many other languages. And like you said, with Ruby there, you know, you can find these sources of inspiration from, you know, all over the place. And applying that to the way you work yourself, I think it can be super valuable. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I remember uh, I was very inspired by when I first started working together with people doing Android uh, was, you know, even, even something like Java, which has existed for such a long time, you can be inspired by some patterns and, and techniques because, well, it turns out it's been around for a while, so they've had a long time to work on these things. Mm -hmm. And one pattern that I was very inspired by at first was the builder pattern, which, uh, you know, back in Objective-C or still when you're using some of these Coco classes, which has a immutable and an immutable counterpart, for example, NS attributed string, which has an NS mutable attributed string, uh, that tends to be kind of the pattern that's used in, in, in Coco and in Apple's frameworks. But on, on the Android side or in Java, it's very popular instead to use a builder where you kind of have this object that you're building up your state and then at the end you just say build on it and you get an immutable model back. And I think that can be super powerful because then you don't accidentally kind of share this mutable state where you accidentally pass a mutable attributed string to a attributed string parameter. And then, you know, five seconds later that string actually changes but the code that received it was under the assumption that it was immutable, right? Mm-hmm. So using the builder pattern kind of, you know, alleviates that a bit and makes it impossible really to pass a builder to a parameter that takes the final object. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, that's, that's uh, a really great example of using the type system to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a ton of things out there to be inspired by. You mentioned async await, there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, builder patterns, there's, also in, in C-sharp, there's this thing, and also in Java, uh, called annotations, mm, mm -hmm. where you can annotate your classes and methods to say, this is a, for example, if you're doing your own JSON parsing, like you can annotate a, a property and say, this is what the key looks like in my JSON, and then you can have a tool that looks at those annotations and actually does your JSON parsing for you. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think that can be super powerful, both when, when working on code and also when building tooling. Yeah, I agree. So I think we can now segue a little bit into the second question, uh, which is also about async programming. So you mentioned that one of your favorite features from C Sharp and JavaScript is async await. And Chris Latner, he wrote a blog post, uh, I think it was last week or something like that. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, uh, where he was talking about uh, the kind of next generation of async programming in Swift. So we have a question here from Robert J. Chatfield. He is at RJ Chatfield on Twitter. And he's asking that Ash mentioned that Artsy uses actors for async code. What does he think about Latner's blog posts? 
That's a good question. Um, so before I get into what I think about the blog post, uh, just to go over actors briefly. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, actors <laughs> are um, confusing. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> actor-based programming is um, a way to write asynchronous code. Um, so like you might think of like a, a closure as the sort of like um, unit of composition for asynchronous programming. You can pass them around, you can call them asynchronously as long as they're escaping. Um, but actor-based programming says like, what if we what if we have like actors instead? And those are, you know, they sort of like operate independently. They can pass messages around to each other. Those messages aren't like guaranteed to get there in a strict order. Um, and you can't really do like, you wouldn't, have like a, a callback for an actor so there's there's like it, it's it's kind of confusing there are a lot of limitations to how you do it but um we use them in um our scala code base um it, it's a real-time bidding engine so it, like for auctions and um it uh it's worked out really well for us um i was i was sort of like i raised my eyebrow when i first you know saw them um and i don't pretend to completely understand you know like how they um how they work because i've only worked with them in this like one limited way um but they're they're exciting to me because um i i'm it tickles my brain when i see something that is like gives you more power by limiting what you can do I love this idea of like, you know, um, like the type system in Swift, for example, that takes away some things like you can't program Swift like you used to be able to program Objective-C or even C. I mean, you can do it, but it's very difficult. Um, so by by like removing this ability and, and, and um, you know, not letting us do something, you know, we get a really powerful type system that allows us to do like really wild things and, and help us in really cool and interesting ways. So... Um, generally, that's that's how I feel about actors. Um, so uh, Chris Latner's blog post was really interesting to me because um, I gave a talk um, down at Playgrounds in Melbourne, Australia um, this year, and it, it was about asynchronous programming, and I mentioned actors, and I mentioned async await, and a lot of the points that I went over in my talk, I, I, I was... Uh, it was it was very exciting to see uh, Chris Latner describe a lot of the same points where he goes over you know like these are the existing strategies for asynchronous programming this is you know these are all the problems with it this is how async await would solve them this is some of the weaknesses of async await like um, it, the the post takes the form of like um, of a, uh, a swift um, evolution proposal and it's just so well written. Um, I, w I wish that all all proposals were as like well thought out as as this one is. But it's clear that that he and I think Joe Graf have been working on it for some time now. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, they definitely had a had a while to think about it, I guess. And also, I, it must be super interesting for them now that Swift has been out in the wild for a couple of years to kind of see what problems people are facing. Because you know, when you're designing this language, which Chris was working on since like 2010 or something, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of hard to imagine all the practical problems that people will face, right? Yeah, it's impossible. So he calls it concurrency in Swift, one possible approach. And I also love that title. I think that just sets the stage, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. say, I'm the creator of Swift. Here's what you should do. You know, it's like, here's what I think, you know, and he goes over like pros and cons. And I think, like you say, it was really well written and was easy to follow. And I also like how he, he kind of 
combined a little bit the idea of async await and actors, right? Like here's how you can make actors very nice by also having async await, right? Mm-hmm. I think I missed that part of the blog post. I'm going to have to go back and reread it. <laughs> yeah, but it was like first it went into async await and then it kind of seg- segued into actors and it was it was mostly about actors, I guess. But yeah, I, I also found that really fascinating and yeah, a little bit over my head, I guess, um, when I read it. Uh, I'm going to also, like you say, have to go back and read it a couple of times probably or at least see some of these things in, uh, in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, super interesting stuff. And I think it's becoming quite clear that, I mean, we, we were just talking in the last question mostly about uh, async abstractions and constructs. And I think it's becoming quite clear that, you know, with Swift's powerful type system, the next kind of big thing that, you know, is going to get tackled is probably going to be the async models that we have. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to see that, especially as like Swift gains popularity on the server where we don't have the, the same... Um, legacy of uh, Coco and CocoTouch APIs to deal with. Yeah, and also, like you mentioned, like this uh, bidding system that you guys are working on, like on the backend side, when you have these like systems that need to be like super concurrent, super scalable, you know, you need to be able to, I mean, when you have things like, because one thing that actors, I think, uh, kind of, one thing that it tackles in a nice way is kind of avoiding this shared mutable state. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to like keep locks to things. You don't, you don't have uh, these like shared state between different async operations. An actor is kind of its own little mini async program, right? That holds its own local state, and that is kind of by nature very scalable. Because if you have, let's say, just a handful of actors doing some work, and you want to scale that up to a thousand, well, that shouldn't be a problem because they are not relying on some like bottleneck somewhere they are just communicating with messages that can be kind of scaled up Mm -hmm. so yeah super super interesting stuff what do you think about the uh he mentioned some some kind of pseudo protocol i guess which he mentioned called value semantical uh (laughs) where it was the idea of like how can we because one problem when you're doing actors and you want to avoid mutable state is what if you have reference types right what if you have classes yeah this is this is something that um, I've talked to um, our Scala developer as well about um, because they have they have this sort of like Scala is a very type safe language is, is as well um, it takes um, I, I think Swift draws a lot of inspiration from Scala in terms of its type system and um, the actor based approach in Scala that we use is uh, it's a library called Akka A K K A and um, it's it's very cool um, from what I've worked with it. Uh, again, like I'm, I don't pretend to be an expert in this, but um, but it was it was very interesting because they have very similar problems. You know, they have this idea of like, um, you know, how do you pass information from one actor to another in a type safe way? Mm-hmm. You, you you can't really. Um, so that's like one of the biggest um, like drawbacks um, in that particular framework. So. Yeah, you almost have to like serialize it on one end and deserialize it on another end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's boilerplate, that's overhead, you know, like it's it's all about trade-offs and and that's what I've uh always really appreciated about um about the writing that that Chris Latner has done is that he contextualizes the decisions really well so that even if I don't agree with some of the decisions that have been made by the Swift team or by uh the the people um 
designing the language, I can understand. And um, there's that um, uh, the the phrase in French. Um, I'm not going to. I will expose myself as a, a fake Canadian by not <laughs> having a, a very good accent. But the idea is that to understand something is to forgive. Um, so I can forgive the the um, the decisions in Swift that I don't agree with because I can understand them. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And I also think that's a nice side effect of language being open source and things doing done in the open where you can kind of see how something came to be and how that thing was derived, right? That's a great it's, point. It didn't fall from the sky. It just kind of <laughs> came up through, through discussion. Mm-hmm. So um, if we should summarize our thoughts, I think, uh, you know, it sounds like we kind of agree that it's, um, it's very exciting and it's the kind of big next step for Swift to get some kind of first class way of doing uh, asynchronous stuff that is not only uh, blocks and callback handlers. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what the future holds. Yeah. So let's move over now to the third question, which comes from my colleague, actually, uh, Kua Pham, who is at OnMyWay133 on Twitter. And he's asking about test-driven development, or TDD. He says, what do you think about TDD? How is adding tests first beneficial? What do you think, Ash? Do you do TDD? Well, I mean, I try to. I think that's that's the best I can I can give as an answer. Is that like, <laughs> you know, uh, I think I think automated tests are great. Um, I think writing, um, like doing TDD uh, for a while was really um, influential on me, and uh, it it changed the way I write code, but. I don't know if I would say that like you have to do TDD all the time. Like I don't certainly anymore, but I write code that um, going back to test it afterwards is is really easy. So like the idea of TDD is that is that you write a, a test that fails and then you write code until it fixes the test and then you repeat that cycle over and over again. Red green refactor. Exactly. Um, that that cycle is very regimented, and you know some people work really well in that. Um, I, I don't, um, but, um, I also, uh, work with Xcode and running tests means compiling my code base and then compiling my test target and then launching the simulator and loading the test target into the simulator and then actually running the tests, which can take a while. So, (laughs) you know, that, that cycle of like red, green refactor, you know, like there's, there's the, the, the gap between red and green is filled with you like you know trying things out and experimenting and and that gap is is really i think um a source of one of xcode's biggest um problems is that you know it it takes i mean like even on a brand new application on a recent computer it can take like six seconds for you to just recompile your tests and rerun them and and that's um that's you know, it doesn't sound like a long time, six seconds, so what? But if you can tighten that up in the way that the JavaScript community has, where you hit save on a file um, and it just runs the tests that relate to the lines of code that you've changed. I mean, the the Jest um, project uh, that um, we use at Artsy is, is phenomenal. It's, it's fast and it's... Um, just very smart about the way it does things. Um, and I'm a bit biased because I've been listening to Orta go on about <laughs> how awesome Jest is for months now. So it, it's, um, 
it takes that time down from like seconds to like milliseconds for fresh projects. And, and that has really almost spoiled me. Like when I've, when I've come back to Swift or when I've gone to like uh, a language like Scala, which has the same compiler um, uh, cycle, like it, it, the, the Scala compiler is sort of infamous for, for um, its speed. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I miss it. You know, it, TDD is, is certainly a lot more effective in um, a JavaScript environment where um, you can use a tool like Jest to um, write your tests and, and um, sorry, in order to, to see the changes that you've made uh, almost instantly. Yeah, I mean, getting really quick feedback is really key, right? And like you say, you don't want to spend your whole kind of workflow on waiting on compilation or launching the tests. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to do something similar to, I think, what you mentioned at the beginning, which is I call it TDD-ish, <laughs> which is uh, I don't do like the religious kind of red-green refactor always, always write the tests first, but I use tests a lot. And tests for me are like super valuable and crucial to my process. Uh, there are really three big reasons I use testing a lot. And the first one is that it gives me much higher confidence in my own code. I kind of know that it works. I know that it handles many of the edge cases that I can think of at least. And especially when doing things like open source, when I put things out there for other people to use, I want to make sure that it works really well and it kind of covers all the cases that it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, the second one is that it kind of lets me test the API and how the API works in all of the different configurations, even though I might not use them right now. So usually when I, when I build something and design an API, I, I have a use case and I'm using it directly as I'm working on it, but I'm not using all the features or all of the use cases at once. So having tests that cover that really helps me kind of design better APIs and think more about what might be next. Mm -hmm. And the third reason why I love tests is that it kind of gives me this like safe safety nets, like a layer of protection from regressions in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and we spoke a little bit about this with Roy Marmelstein on, on the second episode of this podcast, where like if you're working on a big team and you have like lots and lots of changes coming in, having tests that kind of protect your code a little bit so that it won't break up all the time can can be really helpful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I th I think I think you and I are, are sort of like in line in terms of like how we write tests and why we write tests, which is which is really fascinating. Um, I uh, I don't know. Like, I I think that the biggest benefit for me has been um, the way that writing like doing TDD for a little bit changed how I, I write code. You know, I'm thinking about dependency injection upfront, those sorts of ideas. Um, you know, I'm thinking like, how am I going to test this? And that has been for me, the biggest benefit of TDD. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And kind of also not burying yourself in a untestable kind of big pile of code, <laughs> <laughs> which can happen. All right, so I think we have time for one final question. And this one comes from Sean Cotton, and he is at Sean underscore Cotton on Twitter. And he's asking, what are some of the other software tools that you use when you're developing Swift code? Uh, so kind of what other apps or tools are you using on a daily basis when you're working with Swift? Totally. Um, well, I mean, like the, the big one is Xcode and the simulator, but I mean, we've got... Um, uh, 
continuous integration through Circle CI. So um, if you're not familiar with uh, a CI, what it is is basically like every time you open a pull request, it'll run your unit test for you automatically so that if there is a regression, like you mentioned earlier, you'll catch it before you merge that code, which is really good. But that like automation that we have through Circle has been a branching off point for artsy um, and for for me so we um, we do a, a kind of testing called snapshot testing where we um, take a picture of our view hierarchy and then later on we compare it to the a reference image that, that we took earlier um, and if they differ if like a pixel is different or if they differ by such a percentage then like you know that's that's going to um, fail your test um, so that's that's pretty interesting. Um, but like we took that um, step further. We built um, uh, Specta and Nimble matchers for um, the snapshot testing library, which Facebook wrote. Um, so now we can work with them at a higher level abstraction. And then I build a tool because if on continuous integration you have two images that are, are, are different, you know all you have is a text log. Uh, you can't see the pictures. So, <laughs> Not very easy. Exactly. So I wrote a tool called Second Curtain that will actually um, scan the log for the output, upload the images from Circle onto an S3 bucket, and then send you a link um, in the in the log. It'll say like, "Hey, you had some test failures." That, that's a that's a really great name for a project. Second Curtain. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, uh, I'm a big photography nerd, so it was. Uh, I don't know why not. Um, so like a, a, a just total tangent, but like in a typical shutter system, um, you have like a first curtain and then it moves across and kind of opens. And then you have a second curtain that moves in the same direction afterward and kind of closes behind it. So you have like a slit of light that um, that travels over your film or, or a camera sensor. And so that's where I drew the inspiration from. Um, since it was, it's taking pictures. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, perfect. Thanks. That yeah, sounds yeah. really useful. It is, yeah. But we, we like the automation part from um, having CI in the first place was really key. So I could build that tool. And then Orta used a tool um, he wrote called Danger to not just um, uh, get that, um, that URL to the image diffs in your build log, but actually post it as an, a GitHub issue comment or a pull request comment rather. Um, so now you you're notified. You you don't have to go looking for it. And so like automation has um, has been really key for me in order to like unlock the possibilities of like you know what else can I do? Like how can I you know is is there a tool out there that I can write to do work for me? And that's been that's been a, a real key insight that I've gained working at Artsy. Um, just like one more quick like plug for a, a tool that I built <laughs> sure. based on CI. Well, it's not CI, but it's uh, based on automation. Um, it's a tool called Aaron. Um, it's uh, it's spelled a bit weird because it's named after a sci-fi character, but um, what it does is it, it receives GitHub webhooks. So anytime a pull request has been merged, it checks to see if someone, if it's their first contribution. And if it is, then it invites them to the GitHub organization for that project so that you can very quickly amass like a, a community of people building your project instead of just you. And, and the idea is that like anytime someone contributes to your project, they should be invited to participate in, in your community. 
And so like that's something I was spending a lot of time like manually going through my pull request emails. So I automated it. Um, so, you know, like those are the sorts of like software tools that I use to sort of help my job. And they're all based off of like, what can I automate so that I don't have to do actual work? <laughs> yeah. I think there comes a point in every developer's career where you realize I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again. Why don't I let the computer do this for me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of the same for me. Uh, yeah, I do a lot of automation as well. And I love the tools like Danger, Fastlane, CocoaPods mm -hmm. and everything that, you know, helps me with common tasks. Uh, I also plug for one of my tools. <laughs> this is the Plug Your Tool Show <laughs> uh, called Marathon that I wrote, which is a uh, tool for writing and running Swift scripts. So you can build your own build tools and automation in Swift. And yeah, I'm using that a lot myself to kind of set up different chains and do things like, you know, if I need to go and do some repetitive task, I usually write a script for it or hook into some events like you mentioned where, you know, there's some problem you're facing over and over again, you know, let's try to automate that instead. Mm -hmm. um, I also use a lot of tools for visualization. I'm kind of a visual person and I love to kind of sketch things out before I work on them. So I use a tool called MindNode, which is a Mac app. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really great, really great program, uh, really great company also working on it. And in that tool, you can kind of create mind maps. So what I do is that when I'm going to start working on a new feature or a new system, I usually just like put that in MindNode, like put all the different parts and APIs that I kind of envision and just see how it works together visually. Like, do I have a lot of connections back and forth? Well, that sounds like spaghetti code. Mm -hmm. uh, so I try to kind of work on, on code visually before I even start coding it, before I start writing Swift, um, which is super useful to me because that way I can kind of sketch out kind of high level, a high level kind of view of the system or the thing I'm going to work on and kind of identify early issues. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't thought of using uh, mind mapping in that way. That's, uh, that's really smart. Um, I'm, I'm a big like omnifocus person. So I'll just do like a brain dump of just like every idea I have. And, and I've gotten really good at checking omnifocus enough so that I, I trust myself. Like, you know, once I write an idea down, I know that I'll come back and revisit it. Even if, uh, even if at the time, like I'm really frantically just like, you know, posting, you know, dozens of notes into my inbox, like I'll deal with them later and I will. Yeah, that sounds really great. It sounds, yeah, it's kind of similar to what I do also. I also use notes a lot and mm -hmm. yeah, just like, you know, try to get my thoughts down so I don't forget them or, you know, I have the same idea two days later and I, <laughs> you know, I have to go through the same <laughs> process again. Totally. Yeah, it's it's like, um, I don't know who came up with the the term, but, but I love this uh, um, concept of ubiquitous capture. So no matter where you are, if you're on your phone, if you're on your, your uh, computer, um, if you're at a cafe, wherever, you know, you have the ability to like, ha to take an idea that you have and, and store it somewhere for later uh, use. Yeah, that's uh, super valuable to me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I use that a lot. Cool. So um, I guess that's all the questions that we have time for, for this episode. Uh, again, if you want to ask a question for an upcoming episode, you can do so by going to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, or just tweet your question or topic to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. On the next episode, I'm going to have Louis Dehauve. Uh, he is uh, the creator, or he's working on Picture, uh, 
which is a really cool uh, pixel art tool for iOS. And he's also the creator of Panel Kit, which you might have seen on GitHub. It's a kind of window manager is a or panel manager, uh, which you can use for iOS to kind of build these like panel driven UIs. And he also wrote his own compiler and his own programming language uh, called Lioness in Swift. So I think that's going to be really interesting. And if you have any questions for him, make sure you send them either on Twitter or on the website. So we've reached the end of this episode and all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Ash, for coming onto the show. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. And I think this was some really, really interesting conversation. Uh, if you want to uh, find you online, where, where should they go? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm at Ash Furrow on Twitter and GitHub, um, or you can go to ashfurrow.com and read my blog. And um, I've got links on there to like, you know, like, I do photography. I'm, I, I picked up uh, music again. So it's like kind of doing a bunch of stuff and it's all on there. So Perfect. Yeah, there'll be links to both your Twitter and your website and some of your talks in the show notes as well. So make sure to check that out. All right. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.